0: The big question always is, how do you make a feature film directorial debut? How do you go from zero to one? It's a big, giant step for any filmmaker to be trusted with a significant budget, maybe a couple of stars. And today I talked to Ricky Staub, whose directorial feature directorial debut is Concrete Cowboy, available now on Netflix. It stars Idris Elba, Caleb McLaughlin, Method Man, among others. It's based on a true story about cowboys in Philadelphia in the city who have a stable of horses, raise them. It's a whole insane true thing. And he became fascinated by this. Ricky Staub did. He embedded himself within the world. He worked really hard to get the community that actually exists to accept him as a potential storyteller of their story. And over time, he found a way to get the movie made. Um, today, we have his collaborators, Minka Farthing Cole, who is his cinematographer, and Mike Sawa, who's an extremely accomplished DI and colorist. His resume goes back to the film days as a you know digital preview timer to more recent days on digital as a DI. He's done everything from shows like Good Wife to The Orville. Features like The Jungle Book, Mary Poppins Returns, and digital intermediate colorist Mike Sawa has a really long storied career. He's worked on major shows, major films, including The Jungle Book, Disney, Oblivion, the Tom Cruise movie, as well as a number of TV shows like The Good Wife, The Orville. So Mary Poppins Returns, also a feature. So he's experienced at a very large scale. And so having him in the room, with Ricky and Minka, as they were trying to recreate a very unique look, um, a very uh, incongruous look, combining the ideas and motifs of Westerns with uh, the city of Philadelphia. Um, So everything about this story visually is, is interesting and unique and worth checking out. But hearing from these three guys as they talk about their collaboration and their process, you'll learn a lot about how they each kind of built their careers, but also how this project in particular became a labor of love and how Ricky launched his directing career with it. Thank you all so much for doing this and uh, joining me here. I am excited to talk to you I wish we had a lot more time because I really love this movie, but I'm just a huge, I'm a huge Western fan. So the visual, everything about it, uh, I'm I'm just, I'm on board. Like as soon as I, as soon as it came across to me, I was like, oh, this is, this is my thing. I'm into this. So I'm, I really loved it though. And I want to start, we're going to obviously talk mainly about the visuals, but I want to start with, you know, this is a real thing, Fletcher Street. And, well, there's the book, right? And then there's Don't Fence Me In. And I'm curious for the three of you, if we can go through and just talk about visual inspiration, capturing real-world beauty, uh, the mediums you used, uh, and just take me through that the, the inspiration point, the beginning. Why don't we start with Mike and then Ricky and then Minka?
1: Well, you know, as far as um, creating the visuals, that's all... Mostly pre-visualized by Ricky and Minka, um, you know location scouting, and then visualizing time of day for different scenes. So my job is to recreate their vision, possibly enhance it in some way, uh, knowing the box well enough to be able to go in and say, "Hey, let's let's try this uh, rather than that." I know that uh, towards the end we we created images that were a very filmic feeling, which in the beginning we didn't, we didn't really discuss. So the process can morph along the way, uh, but really my involvement uh, really stems from sitting with the talent, Ricky and Minka, and, and looking at visuals and then deciding on you know, how we want to enhance this particular scene. So it's a step-by-step process at least, uh, for me. Right.
0: Okay. And then, I mean, I guess we did, did this out of order, but you know, movies are made out of order, so that's fine. But we so we'll, we'll jump back to, we'll go back in time a little bit. Cause by, by the time Mike comes in, you've already kind of passed that point of previs and you've, co- you've collected your footage and shot things. So, so Ricky, tell me like from early inception visually. Before you start collaborating with Minka, when you're just kind of like this, writing this movie, reading this book, looking at the foot, being in the world where it takes place. Yeah, totally. So something that
2: really inspired me from the beginning was my process with the real cowboys, specifically Eric Miller and Jamil Prattis. Uh, Mill is actually in the film; he plays Paris. Um, and you know, we spent several years with them working on the script uh, leading up to production. But something that always resonated with me from their point of view and their heart is they would tell me how growing up, they never had Westerns that had black cowboys. And it was Eric's hope to be able to make a a modern Western that told their story, but that felt like something that could have happened. They could have watched when they were kids and something for him to leave to his children. And so the way that I interpreted that was like, how can we actually take their real story, but make a film that feels almost nostalgic to what makes Westerns great. Um, And some of the things that, you know, stood out to me and some of the inspiration, like the films that, you know, Minko would send me or the films that Eric and Mill were really inspired by was, you know, a lot of like the style of the shooting or, you know, even the look of this like warm, hot feel that all these films had. Um, even a simple decisions like the anamorphic lensing. Um, you know, I was really drawn to how a lot of westerns back then introduced characters. There was always like this big like, dun dun dun, this person, <laughs> uh, and they used music really heavily, which um, you know I, I thought. Kevin Matley, our composer, did like this incredible job. I told him, I was like, I want a Western feel, but I want it to have a modern cinematic tone. I didn't even really know what that sounded like. I just liked how it sounded when I told him to do it. (laughs) But um, (laughs) I really feel like he achieved it, you know, and he would ask me like questions about that. I was like, you know, seems like in a lot of these Westerns, there's like big horns and they use music. So it was fun um, in all aspects to kind of you know, from the ground up, say, you know, how do we, how do we have fun with those tropes? Um, and there's just a lot of visual, you know, language, um, Minka and I would discuss in terms of the look of the feel of the film. Um, you know, the Cowboys provided just hundreds of photos from the seventies and eighties. And they always had this like warm kind of glow to them. So we talked about, you know, having that be a part of it, you know, I'll think I can talk about the types of lenses we used intentionally to give a certain look.
0: Uh,
1: yeah, what I, I love,
0: was, I, yeah. I, I, there's Sorry, so much I want to follow up on there. there. One of the things I love about it is that we expect the Western to be Western cinema synonymous with the vista, the open spaces and John Ford and Monument Valley. It's not the beauty, urban beauty, and even the, like, dilapidated urban beauty that it takes place in this setting of North Philadelphia is not what we associate but as soon as you get the horse in there and you get the guy with the cowboy hat and you get the kind of lighting you used in some of the lenses suddenly like those buildings and warehouses start to look like Monument Valley in this weird way like it's magical almost um, and it's 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 strangely beautiful and I I, I want to know what the features were that you guys talked about because there's lots of different kinds of visual like Western, like I mentioned John Ford, but there's also, um, you know, all of the Leone movies. There's, there's so many different places you could go. So how did you, the two of you, and then we'll transition to Minka talking about it, I guess. But where did you guys look?
2: I mean, Minka, you could actually take that. You're the one who's sending me all the films to watch. He still does to this day. (laughs) (laughs) I got a backlog.
3: (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I'm Send always me keep some. Keeping tabs. i are like, Ricky, did you see that yet? Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there's so much, as you said, there were so many things that were really interesting about recontextualizing the tropes and the tone and the genre of a Western into North Philadelphia. What was super exciting for me was, you know, I've both Ricky and I have actually lived in Philadelphia for quite some time. I went to Temple University. So I lived within a couple blocks or maybe half a mile of where we we're filming most of the film and i remember the first time i saw a rider was when i was on my bicycle it was maybe like 1 or 2 a.m. i was coming back from a friend's house and just i looked down the alley and i see you know the silhouette of a horse and a person riding this riding this horse and it was kind of just so surreal and so you know i wasn't really sure what to make of it but um that was my first introduction to them and then slowly got introduced to them through Ricky and, th- and through other people um but i guess in, in terms of films <clears throat> You know, obviously, obviously Sergi Leone, his work is really incredible, really kind of fun and playful and cinematic. But then also like uh, these different takes on the Western, like Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven. But then we also just looked at some some different films, like Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing and the saturation of the color and the way that it treats the, the urban environment and the set and the production design was super interesting to us. One film that is one of my favorite films of all time is, is City of God, kind of the... How arresting and urgent the images are, and how visceral it feels, and yet it seems all kind of haphazard when you're watching it. But if you kind of go back through and analyze it, it all starts to kind of you, you see a very specific lens that the filmmakers you know presenting everything through. And then Jacques Audiard, his films, uh, specifically *A Prophet*, following a protagonist, this kind of unsung hero, is is just really special film. So then we looked at like street photography too, Shabazz, uh, his stuff is really incredible, kind of the lensing that he uses and the proximity to the talent. It feels like you're really present in the world. Uh, but honestly, it was kind of an endless conversation. It just depended on where we were at, what the scene was. Um, you know, the whole, the whole experience was pretty organic. I don't know if I could point to a single source.
0: City of God is, I hadn't even thought of that. It's such a, there's such a correlation visually. Um, that's such a beautiful movie, but again, it kind of combines something, some elements that feel a little incongruous, but they've meld so well. And that's how your movie feels too. Can you tell me about the specific choices? Like you mentioned some of the lenses, some like, you know, tell me about the camera and why you went with the camera you did and, and the lenses you paired to get the look.
3: So the camera we went with was the mini and the reason for that was just a lot of the spaces we were dealing with were really small. know, a lot of these houses, the floor plan is like 400 square feet of floor. Each room is 10 by 10. So having a small camera was going to be super helpful. You know, we discussed shooting film at one point, but knowing the way that uh, Ricky likes to work with the actors, it was going to seem, it felt like it was going to be more of an impediment than, um, than something that was going to be useful to the storytelling of the film. It seemed like it was What's really What's the helpful. way you
0: work? Can you t- just quick quick side footnote? What's the way Ricky works with the actors? Can you tell us, Ricky? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that for sure. that makes film an impediment. Well, I knew
2: there was a couple of things that I knew going into it. Is you know we shot the whole film in twenty days, um, and there's wow. a lot in the film. You know, it's not a couple of kids talking about life by the lake. So um, I knew that we weren't going to have a lot of time. But I also like to to run scenes almost like a play. You know to Create a more immersive experience for the actors. I also allow for a lot of improvisation, um, especially in this story where I was putting a lot of the real community into the movie itself. Um, I didn't want to rely on the script itself like it was Shakespeare, Um, so I was giving a lot of latitude there. So I just wanted to be able to do a lot of runs, and I don't like to cut. I think it impedes on the performance a lot, um, takes people out of it. And, you know, the second you yell cut, everyone rushes in to, all, to do all their things like hair and makeup and this and that. And um, So to me, there's a lot of power in giving the actors freedom to just like stay in the scene. Um, you know, and I'm also conscious of with film, there's a budgetary concern if we're going to shoot like that. And so I just, we found a way to work around, you know, getting a look that was at least akin to, what we could have achieved with film, but, you know, I mean, obviously someday hopefully we're able to do that. But in this circumstance, all those variables to me, it was more important to be able to get the strongest performance as possible, you know? And so that gave us shooting digitally, gave us that, you know, in spades.
0: Going back to, yeah, camera choice, like, the Alexa Mini, so you're in small spaces. Cause you were on location there, right? I like some of the locations look a lot like the photographs of the space Yeah, I mean it's it's the
2: real Fletcher Street stable. So um, yeah, yeah, we were working with what was there and it's tight.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that was really exciting about the choices that Ricky made as he framed this story was that all the look you know, authenticity was paramount and kind of that was kind of the backbone of almost every decision that was made so half of the cast is from the community all the locations are real you know the stories are all pivoted upon, upon you know real things that happen in the community um so we kind of tried to you know use that as as the you know central idea as to how how we you know decided what the aesthetic might look like but in terms of lenses like we just used a frankenstein batch of different lenses that Ricky and I have used throughout the years that we've slowly come to love so we had like the 24.5 Elite we had the 38 Todd 55 Todd 75 Todd we had like 100 lombo, a 12 millimeter standard speed 600 mil Nikon Nikkor and some other stuff I'd have to look at the the list but the ACs weren't super happy. The matte box situation was a bit of a pain.
0: <laughs> Mainly because these are the like you you guys have found a confidence in these lenses to help you get the look you want on a digital format. Is that is yeah exactly
3: yeah? We also use the Maruz from Lensworks for a couple of scenes specifically. Um, but yeah, it's just with some of these older lenses, they you know not even the same lens will be will look the same next to each other. If you took a Pepsi challenge, you'd be like, these are to- totally different lenses. So kind of throughout the years, I've been writing down the serial numbers of different lenses that that I like or that work. And then, you know, when given the opportunity for something that's going to be special, push the vendors and be like, hey, can we get this 24.5 from Dewall and this, you know, 55 from Lensworks and the 75 from-, from Keslo?
0: So Mike, when you come into the process and you're seeing... You know the footage they shot. Do you guys work the three of you with like some references, or do you just kind of go by like how much is baked? How much of the color is baked in? How much uh, do you have to do in the DI?
1: None of the colors baked in when I start. Uh, I'm starting with a log image. We have you know CDL or and or LUTs applied for their dailies. Um, and then in the process of editing, they, you know, they've, they've, they get used to a certain look based on the LUTs that we created or a CDL that has been applied, which is a color decision list, which is color corrections that would have been done by the, uh, the dailies colorist you know, on the day of, of the shoot. So I do have a reference. Um, I'm, I can, I'd like to see what, what the editor and the director have been working with and what they've been seeing for months you know, on and I like to have that as reference. I like to get close to that as a starting point. So, like, my, my process starts with just trying to create an image that, you know, that, that flows in the world that they're used to seeing. Minka, Minka came in first. He and I sat for, I think, a week going through the film, kind of pulling it into that the world that, that felt right. Um, and then we presented that to Ricky. And then Ricky said, Ricky said,
3: make it darker. Yeah.
1: <laughs> is that true? He said yeah, I one see of the too o- much. One of the only times a director is a- actually asked to have something darker.
2: <laughs> I get that note a lot too on my work.
1: It's too uh, dark. <laughs> but it, it it totally it you know, even though it's dark, these are real environments, you know, and you don't feel like it's a Hollywood set. You feel no. like yeah. you know, you, because of the lighting. Um, because of the size of the room you you know that if it was a set it would have been built to have plenty of room for camera and crew um, but you don't and, and because of that you get such an intimate feel you want you want to keep it dark and, and intimate but you know you, you still want to see into those moments you know yeah, which I mean, is where the the lighting came in
2: yeah I mean to speak to that it's uh, it's not just like I like things dark I think it's it's a taste thing where it's even with the lens choices we made. You know, when you when you put a Todd AO against, I don't know, not as techie as these guys, like a more current lens, it all the Todds almost feel like they're out of focus if you were to put them next to each other. But I think we've gotten to a place with technology where things are almost too sharp and too clear, almost beyond the human eye. Like when I see things in the world they're not as sharp as some of the images i see on tv now and to me it takes me out of it it doesn't it feels presented like it's a movie now and i'm also like i've been privy to walk into row homes or into these stables when it's dark and you can't see everything and so part of that was a decision to go i want the audience to have a hard time seeing things like this is the world that we're in um so i'm i'm okay with That comment, which I get constantly, it feels so dark. I'm like, yeah, well, you should go into a stable in North Philly at night. It's
1: pretty dark. Yeah, this is real life.
2: (laughs) It's what it feels like. (laughs) Imagine being inside us, you know.
0: The darks are dark and the light sources feel like they're the kinds of lights, like a street light, you know, an an urban light source. They just have that feel. Um, What lights did you use on set? Did you use a lot of practical? Did you use a lot of LEDs? Did you color, do you did you do stuff with like coloring them on set as you're shooting?
3: Yeah. Uh we had this incredible gap for Seth Coleman from New York and uh, his best boy Callum Shaw really were super incredible. And then John Sybert, our key grip. But yeah, we used just a myriad of of sources, uh, depending on the location and, and what was going on. But I guess one of the most exciting things we were able to do is um Jeff Waxman, our producer, got us a balloon light for the nighttime exteriors and we were able to put uh sodium vapor light bulbs in that or mercury halides and that just got us the color right out the box and got us the kind of exposure and levels mixed with the qual with the quality that we wanted but we used a lot of practicals a lot of pushing those practicals you know whether it was going HMIs through windows or tungsten or you know throwing gels gels on lights or Asteras, or we actually used this light called the DS-1 a lot as well, and, and we bounced that into Muz uh, in these small spaces. But going back to, to the sets and how, how real they were, one of the best moments was when Idris first walked onto the stable set, and he looks up at these cobwebs that they look like they're out of a movie, and he says, damn, it must have taken you guys a long time to put those up there. And I said, 100 years. <laughs> <laughs> And he said, "Those those can't be real." And I said, "I mean, yeah. it's
0: funny. I'm looking at it's. I'm looking at pictures in the story about like the uh, the Lindstrom. I don't know if that's how to pronounce her name, but who took the photos in the stables? It's the same place you shot. It's the same thing. Like in the look and like those cobwebs are there. And it's funny to think of. Yeah, you get Idris Elba on set. <laughs> and he's like he thinks this is a set or, a, or an art location, but it's just this natural look that you guys took advantage of."
2: Yeah, I made sure you believed it was set dressing because I could tell he was a little spooked.
0: <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about something, Ricky, you mentioned, because we jumped into, you know, a lot of the specifics of the color and the look, but you talked about how part of the mission was make make this movie, you know, it's a true story or or it's a real place with real people, but you know, fictionalized within it. The mission of making a western that featured black people in a way that the most of the Westerns that were popular in the 50s, 60s don't, but that served the same kind of purpose. And like Idris Elba, is, he's like the perfect star for that in a way. What were the, like, how did you fulfill that? Like, it's such, you know, you're like, how did you, how did you make this kind of a modern, but also classic Western? To
2: me, I mean, the, I guess my major response is I, I recognize that I think the strength of the film is going to be how many of the real people could I put in a place, in a position to use their actual voice in front of the camera. You know, it's moments like, um, you know, in prep, making that decision, casting, you know, Mill as Paris or Mercedes as Isha. Um, You know, she grew up down at the stables, um, all the background. But even in like, you know, there's a scene around a fire pit where, there's this uh, gentleman, he's an older cowboy named Choo Choo Charlie. And he originally was just a background, but uh, during that, we're rehearsing that scene, you know, Idris pulled me aside. And, you know, at this point, he's come to realize what I'm trying to achieve here. And he, there's a moment in that scene, as it was written, where Idris was actually giving the, the history of, you know, the stables and, the horses down in Philly over the hundred years. But he's like, Ricky, I think we need to have G2 Charlie. I need to pass all these lines to him. I was like, great, let's do it. Let's go for it. And so it was cool to see that now. I mean, he even made the trailer uh, to see that scene where it just, there was these constant choices being made to make it a cowboy film, so to speak, because we just gave the microphone to the cowboys themselves. Um, they, you know, they've been living this story their whole lives. So, um, every brick we put down, you know, was based off of where they told us to put it, you know, even at the script phase, you know, 85% of that, that script is straight out of their mouth over the years of working with them. So, I mean, to me, to me, that's how we did it.
0: How did you, uh, how long did you spend listening to the stories and hearing these voices to get them in the script? What was the process like?
2: We started by, I'd say it was almost, I think a year and a half of just spending time with the Cowboys, specifically with Eric and Mel. So, you know, we'd go down to the stables, we'd ride horses, we'd go to their barbecues like exactly depicted in the film, Um, just absorbing the culture. You know, in a lot of ways we were cold, like we knew nothing about horses in general, but specifically this Cowboy culture. So everything I learned about riding horses or being around horses was through their perspective.
0: But and then did we you took have, it. In. Had you optioned the book? Had someone optioned the book yet? Or yeah. Was it- so
2: yeah, basically as we had met Eric, uh, our like, first cowboy I met, we had optioned the book. Uh, two of our producers, Sam Mercer and Tegan Jones were the first really to get behind us and got us the book. Um, we just thought it was a great framework, a great in. Uh, Greg, the author had great ties to the community. So you know, I had read that book years prior and kind of flagged it like, man, this would be a great movie one day. And we all agreed that this, you know, we loved the the classic in, you know, this kid coming who knows nothing, fish out of water and everyone trying to catch him up yeah. to speed. Uh, it was a really fun way to get into the world. And it, And to me, it was a way for me as a storyteller to... B Cole, you know, cause I was kind of him, you know, even that, uh, the scene where he's shoveling shit in the stables that literally happened to me. There's a cowboy named James who I would go down there every weekend and do stalls with him and just riding me about what I'm not doing right and this. And I just, I remember I wore like some really cool tennis shoes that I just totally fucked up. And <laughs> he made me literally do that. He made me walk the plank as he said it. And, uh, <laughs> I did not have the benefit of prop shit. I had actual horse shit. <laughs> um and I did. I made it all the way up and dumped it and all the cowboys sitting there watching me work cheered me on. I mean, it was literally like I ripped that out of real life. So it was I cool. mean this
0: uh, that's really immersing yourself that way, were they like, oh this guy's this guy's gonna make a movie? Like how I mean this is a closed up, this is a community that I I how welcoming were they of you and your goal here? Like, or yeah, did they have to warm a, up to you? Like- a, there was a
2: lot of warming up, you know, <laughs> Eric, Eric and Mill were quicker to warm to me. Um, I think one of the things that we did that was pretty substantial for them is, you know, I met Eric. I, so I have a production company that we started in 2011 with a mission to hire adults returning home from incarceration. And so I speak every year in court and I actually met Eric in court when I was speaking about our company's apprenticeship, as we call it. And he had been week, had been home about a week um, out of prison and was telling the judge how he already bought a horse. Um, and that's where I met him. So he, he I think it helped kind of grease the wheels where he understood like who I was and where I was coming from. But it also helped that he had seen um, the short film or was familiar with the short that Mink and I made. Um, and we invited him and about a dozen cowboys to our office. And I remember him telling me it was the first time that anyone in the history of Fletcher street had ever invited them into their homes versus they get people just basically like poachers coming down there with cameras and just kind of throwing money at people and filming. You know, I was really trying to help him understand that if we were going to make a movie, it was going to be a really long, deliberate, um, careful process. And it was only going to happen if we did it together. And so Eric and Mill, I think really were the first ones to actually believe me. <laughs> and then it just, over time, you know, like Eric would always encourage me, he said, you just got to keep coming down and you just got to be there. And so there was definitely a lot of skepticism. I mean, I would be skeptic over the years if I had watched, you know, folks come down there all the time and I'm clearly not from there, but, um, I don't, I didn't even pull out camera for well over a year, which was hard i mean it's beautiful down there and there's so many like amazing things happening it's like i can see why you just want to get down there and shoot but i understood that the most important piece was building the relationships with these folks a so they trusted me but b because i genuinely thought like this film will only be successful if they really believe in themselves and 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 do it you know and are in it and so uh, it was really hard of making sure everyone was involved
0: you genuinely were coming from the right place and you definitely had to prove that like putting in a year of time without a camera to prove that you're not taking advantage or an opportunist like that. That's a lot. Um, when did Minka come and did he
3: bring the camera? <laughs>
2: yeah. Uh, when did you get down there, Minka? I can remember.
3: 18 months ago now, you know, in COVID and so much has happened many lifetimes ago, probably be before pre-production came down and, I didn't bring a camera either, uh, the first couple of times, just cause so aware of major corporations coming in and, and throwing cash around, you know, so that they can sell a product through cultural exploitation. Uh, so I think that just being engaged and being present and, and not being there through a lens was important. Um, so no, yeah, I didn't bring it, we didn't really bring a camera until kind of, kind of until we started shooting.
0: So it was all like
3: kind of mental pictures.
0: Like noting what the world was and how you might shoot it and planning it. Yeah, I mean, I had
2: I I had taken some photos previous to prep. Actually, I remember now. I'm trying to because I'm thinking of the photos in my mind. Eric um, had a brother that was in prison. I remember, and he wanted photos to send to his brother. So then he asked me, he's like, can you bring your camera? And that's when I I got some shots. Like there's a shot of Eric at the end of the film. You know, unfortunately he lost his life to gun violence before we started prep. Um, And we took a bunch of pictures though. And um, one of those is that photo, but um, he wanted to be able to send pictures back to his brother who was locked up uh, to show him what he was up to and show him his, his horse that he had purchased and all that.
0: Yeah, so and and Mike, I you know, I want to come back to you because you've been a DI, you've been doing this for a very long time through many, you know, different kinds of projects. Uh did this pose, you know, unique challenges or was this like how did this differ this project maybe from from some of the others just because you have such a pro, you've had such a prolific career. <laughs> I'm curious where this one stood or what you noted about it.
1: Well, every film is, is different in one way or another. There's always, I always approach a film with an open mind. Uh, I never tried to fit it into a box of, of looks. This particular film wanted to be real. You know, it really wants to be real because it is real. So, in, in the approach the only thing that we did that was that even borders the, like the the whole stylized look is in, in, i keep thinking of the you know when things are dark when we're out on the street like with coal and smush and you know there's a contrast in that darkness there's a shininess out on the street you know with the lights popping when we're in the stables or in the apartment You know, um, it's a very soft, dark, you know, uh, almost dusty, almost like, you know, you can feel the environment more. Um, You know, so creating a look is just getting a feel for what the film is trying to tell you uh, and not getting in the way. You know, it's like I want to create an image that represents the scene the way it needs to be told without taking like the, you know, without taking the viewer out of the film, who is now going, whoa, look at that, you know, or, or like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? Um, I just want it to feel like a real environment. And fortunately in this film, they're all real environments, you know? <laughs> so it just kind of feels like the right place at the right time. So you try to let the
0: material lead you a little bit instead of trying to have a decision in mind to start. Like this is what it's going to be.
1: Yes, that's a good way to put it. I, you know, it's got to it's got to be good for the story. You know, the look. It has to. It can't take a viewer out of the film. You know, it's like there's the one moment um, when we're in the uh, in, in the house, uh, the, like the pink house with the green fish tank. It's like that. That's a moment that for me was it was so much fun. Um, because it does, you know, when you're, when you're, I'm, I'm you know, trying very hard to make it look like a real film, to look like a real environment. But then we get into a moment like that. And my first thought was, Oh, geez, you know, it's pink. It's like, wow, we want this to look real, but no, it, you know what, that's a different moment than any other moment in the film. Um, and with, uh, you know, the, with the, you know, where we are and why we're there in that house. Uh, I think the lighting is perfect. You know, when I see it, it's like, there is a woe factor when, it, when you cut to it, but then you just believe it. You know, it's like, oh. Can you um, tell
0: – did you have something to throw in there, Ricky, on that?
2: As referencing, we had a lot of fun with that scene, or uh, especially the fish tank. Or yeah, Minka yeah. Particularly. That <laughs> was, was a Minka ad.
3: There was a, piranha, there was a piranha that was missing, though.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Minka wanted to have a shot at the end or a piranha ate a goldfish or something like that. I
3: remember. Well, he's, supposed to be feed, he's supposed to be feeding a mouse to the, to the Python.
2: <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But I actually I remember when we, when we went in there, that fish tank was in that house in another room. And you had said to me, make it, you're like, what if he was feeding these fish in a corner and you're kind of, I think you're trying to be like tongue in cheek. And I was like, I actually really love that. We're going to do that. <laughs> That's
3: great. <laughs> it's always, always nice to give your villains some business, you know? That, that location was incredible. The, those blinds were there. And as soon as we saw the blinds, we're like, oh, man, we, we got to shoot here if we can, if they'll let us. And some of the people from the house actually made the shot. They made the, they're in the scene. How many, and I think you said 20 days,
0: right? Was that partly like scheduling, like Idris Elba or Caleb or, or was it budget? What were the, I mean, all these things, like 20 days is tight. Uh, yeah, it's insane, actually.
2: Type of <laughs> uh, audacious is the word everyone used, which I started to realize, man, I was crazy, but uh, it's all we could oh, you spent
0: How many years up until getting ready and then 20 days? That must have felt overwhelming. I can only imagine. Like all the prep, all the research. Yeah, It starts feeling really yeah.
3: overwhelming when you don't get a shot before lunch because of lightning, which happened for us three different times. So we lost like a day and a half. Lightning
0: day. in Philly. Tell, yeah. Tell me about for that. Me. <laughs> That
2: was rough. I mean, like even the night that we shot, um, that scene where they're sitting around the fire, it was that scene. It was also the scene when Cole walks up to his dad for the first time, and then one other scene. We lost five hours to lightning and rain, and we didn't have the ability to go into other days. So it was just the reality became, you just have five less hours to achieve your day. (laughs) Uh, So that happened to us multiple times. Brutal.
3: That was your ten, 10 pages of dialogue scene too. Yeah.
2: Really?
0: So what do you tell tell me? Like what did what did you do? You cut it? You rewrote it? You? No,
2: I told my actors you better be ready because we're gonna fucking fly. They <laughs> 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 did, and that's when Idris. That was that moment. They all went inside and they rehearsed that scene. Um, they sat around a table and they rehearsed because they knew I wasn't kidding. I was like, this this is gonna happen. It's just going to be fast. And so like, I think that, but that's when it plays in our favor when they already know that I shoot everything like a play. You know, uh, I think that scene was actually six or seven pages long. It's by far the longest scene. And I said, well, it's a six or seven minute play. And
0: how, how quick did uh, you we have? We five
2: hours left. You know, we're on a 10 hour day.
0: Wow. Or, we're also shooting overnight. So it's not
2: like, you know, four in the morning. You're not exactly spry. Uh, wow! So I give a lot of credit to actors. Like, it just was what it was. But I, I give a lot of credit to like Idris and Caleb. Didn't even they're like, all right, let's slower. Let's get to work. I mean, in I addition I mean, to I... Idris even coming back and saying, let's give lines to this guy Choo Choo Charlie. Like he was, he stayed collaborative.
0: It wasn't like no one. That's really impressive, Minka. How do you cover it? Like from your perspective, like it's one thing for the director, like. To have the the stones, Ricky, to be like, okay, like feature debut, right, as a director, and I've got Idris Elba here, and I'm like, you better fucking finish this scene in five hours. Like that's ballsy, and you pulled it off. But Minka, from a from like from like setting up your kit, like how do you cover it? Like I mean, five. I I can only imagine DPs losing their shit and they're cool in my experience when they are faced with something like that.
3: Yeah, it was definitely, I mean, it was always going to be one of the most challenging scenes regardless of time because of the way that um, Rookie and I had wanted to shoot it, which was to keep be able to keep the camera super loose and to kind of roam and basically shoot it like a documentary so that you, you know, have this level of authenticity that'll resonate and these frames aren't too perfect. And, you know, maybe we miss a moment, but there's something that makes it feel more visceral. Um, so Basically, we lit it, you know, 360, uh, which is never particularly easy. But once once it was kind of lit and set up, uh, a lot of it was just about feeling it out. And we had an incredible b camera operator, Drew Sirocco, good friend of mine back from the video store days. And, you know, between me and him and Ricky, we just kind of, they just went back to back to back and, you know, got a bunch of takes Ricky he would give, give notes after performance. And then, you know, towards the end, we go in for a couple... A couple moments and hopefully able to bring in some some light but for the most part it was global lighting uh very verite
0: yeah i mean that uh, on top of a tight schedule i'm just I'm, I'm amazed that uh mike did you ever watch any of these things and be honest and be like oh man there's not enough here <laughs> 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 you can be uh, yeah i mean I, I've, <laughs> I've seen a lot
1: <laughs> yeah you know and i fortunately uh you know, doing what I do. I mean, I, I get to create, so I, I, you know, it's like I I try not to expect too much out of a story. Um, but, you know, when I'm going through a film, I don't really listen to it. So I'm just going by visuals and just going by, you know, expressions on actors' faces. And what's amazing to me is how often I'm so wrong about where the story is going. <laughs> Um, you know, because you see these expressions and you think, oh, you know, that guy, he's mad. So there's a confrontation. here. Well, then, you know, you see the story that's totally opposite of what I thought. So I, I do love that moment where I actually get to sit with, you know, the director and the DP, you know, and just sit and watch it with sound. Sound is distracting. It's so it's, yeah. yeah, so I really get a, a, you know, it's like, I, even when I watch the, you know, the, the, the film in the offline stage before I start the D.I., You know, I just kinda scrub through it and I look at scenes and just kinda get a feel for what they've been looking at for so long. So I you know, I really don't get to listen to it until well into the process.
3: Mike, you kind of remind me of my grandfather. He was a professor at Washington University in cellular biology and he would wear hearing aids and if he didn't like what he was hearing during the lecture, he would turn down his hearing aids until he kind of got the information that he wanted and then he'd ask these most out out of left field questions. (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 i love the idea though of you
0: just kind of turning off the distraction of sound so you can focus on what the visual story is trying to tell you that makes to a, a lot point. of sense
1: yeah, yeah to a point you know because there are there are moments where you're driven by the sound and by the music uh so you know there are emotional moments that you have to listen to to really understand you know, that this is an emotional scene because the way the music or the dialogue hits you has nothing to do with the visuals at that moment. Again, I just don't, I don't want the visuals to get in the way of, of a moment like that. So, you know, I have to hear it at some point.
0: I want to ask each of you, if you had any advice for, for people getting started, uh, what, in in your particular field, if it, but also just in, Trying to go out and get a career going in this industry, uh, what would you what would you advise? And we'll go, Mike, Ricky, Minka.
1: In, in today's world, getting a job as a colorist is way different than when I got a job as a colorist. I wanted to be an editor, and I uh, I got a job at a post house working in the the tape library, taking editing classes, and then I just stumbled into this process. And I in college I I had an art minor. So I had an interest in creating. Um, so when I saw this process for the first time, uh, I just knew I mean, as soon as I saw it. And Fortunately for me, there was a guy doing it who just got up out of the chair and said, oh, sit down and have a go. You know? <laughs> and so, yeah, you know, and it was on a very basic system. This is back in the mid 80s, you know, the, the, you know? The, the color correctors are nothing like they are now. Uh, So it was just extremely basic and it was working directly on film. But, you know, he got out of the chair and he let me try it. So that just doesn't happen anymore. You know, it's like, you you, you know, now with the timetables and the, you know, the expectations, um, the complicated systems that we're working on, it's like you really have to have training to do it. You can't just get out of a chair and say, well, have a go, you know, because you stare at the box going (laughs) – I don't know what to do first. You know, what do I turn? I don't know what anything right. is. So it, it's a much more difficult process to, to become a colorist, but it, it still is possible because there are still post houses. Um, there are there are you know many many small post houses that you know that, that pop up all the time because a lot of these systems are downloadable to your own laptop at home, like your personal laptop. So I know the system I'm working on, this DaVinci Resolve. It's about the fifth different system I've had to learn in my career, but it's so versatile, and when I learned it, I actually downloaded it and was working on it at home, trying to learn it before I actually sat down in the in the d i suite um, and had to do things for real. I had some kind of practical experience working on my own stuff at home because I could, you know because it's it's a free download you know so because of that, also, it's like there are so many people now who understand what a colorist is and what a colorist does. I mean, back in the day when I told people I was a colorist, they said, well, they couldn't imagine me at a hair salon dying <laughs> hair. You know, it's like, no, <laughs> let me explain what I do. You know, so, um, but, but, you know, now when I say I'm a colorist, it's amazing how many people know what that is. So, uh, we've come a long way. I've been doing this. You know, I sat down in the chair and um, as a colorist, I was in the industry earlier, but as a colorist in 1987, it's come a long way. And but what keeps me going is that it's like every week there's something new to learn. There's no shortage of things to, to, to keep the brain occupied. You know, it never gets dull. It never gets boring. And every film is totally different. And if you treat every film different, I think you're going to be in, you're going to have a career that you'll never be bored with.
0: Yeah. The variety of projects you've worked on is, is amazing. So there's a lot of opportunity to do lots of different things and be exposed to a lot of different kinds of films and have a creative hand in them. Uh, Ricky, since, you know, I'm, I'm curious, like this project feels like it was a big first step or, or second step or first feature step for you, but what would you advise somebody who's like right now trying to get into writing and directing movies?
2: I think it's surrounding yourself with people who intimidate you, like their their talent level intimidates you, is vital. Um, and I can always measure that by how I use the word intimidation because you know when I think of Minka specifically, in many ways I think he might be a better director than me, and therefore I. I want him on my team and I, and I genuinely mean that I actually came across Minka from a short film he directed and I recognize that what that allows me to have the freedom to do is not worry or micromanage my collaborators and it's just maybe that's unique to my personality I don't know but it's helped me like recognize that one of my greatest strengths as a director is just finding the most talented people possible and then giving them the freedom to be talented. Uh, It doesn't mean that I don't, you know, have a specific vision or, you know, put up bumpers like, hey, I actually want to go this way. But the amount of times that I've been able, I feel like, to capture lightning in a bottle from the people I collaborate with seems like I can do it every time now, most specifically because I'm I'm surrounding myself with people that I genuinely, deep down in my pride, (laughs) believe are better than me. Um, And so it sometimes feels like cheating, you know, even working with someone like Mike, um, I'm never afraid to admit, like, I don't even know what they're talking about when they talk about CDLs or LUTs, but it doesn't matter. They know what they're talking about. (laughs) Um, and not to be afraid to say that, like, um, you know, I think earlier in my career I'd be afraid to admit, I didn't know what someone was talking about, but what happens then is I'm not actually voicing my vision because I'm afraid of looking like an idiot. But just because you look like an idiot doesn't mean you're not still the director or the leader, you know? And most of the time you realize you won't, no one will make you look like an idiot. Um, It's just your own pride talking inside your head. But yeah, being able to say, Hey, I don't know if this makes sense, but you know, I kind of see it like this. or like trying to figure out a way to like help others see your vision. And when you're surrounded with people who are immensely talented, uh, the results are incredible. You know, like um, I'd always joke with these guys with all my, department heads, anyone. It's like, if you're incredible and you're doing your best work, I'm going to get all the credit as the director. It's amazing (laughs) how that works. (laughs) And so I always encourage, you know, to just give people the freedom to be their best versions. So that'd be my advice.
0: That's, I've never heard that before the be intimidated. That's, that's good. I bet a lot of people are afraid of that so much that they would never think to lean into it. I love that. Yeah, uh, I've met a lot of people
2: that are, like don't reach out to people because they're intimidated. I'm like that's the wrong path. You should reach out because you're intimidated.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think that's really sound advice. You know, to put yourself in a world where you know, ideally, you're surrounding yourselves. Whether for what I do, whether it's the directors like Ricky or, or the gaffers or some of the other technicians, to just put pe- be with people who. I've worked on things that you like, who you respect, who you think are gonna have interesting ideas. You know, ideally, it's all a collaboration. so hopefully the the sum is greater than the individual parts. Um, it's always really special when you when it's better than you think it's going to be or you find something unexpected. Um, I said the other really important thing is literally just going out there and making stuff. Uh, that's kind of how things uh, worked out for me was just it's been a very slow and organic process of you know one person band making something alone and with a couple friends and then slowly that community grows so yeah just kind of one day at a time you know it's, it's not going to happen overnight but if you're if you're tenacious and, and resilient i think eventually the cards will fall
0: I, I, again, I appreciate all three of you coming on. I love the film. I hope people see it, but I really, uh, very good, varied advice too, and how to get involved or how to get started. So, thank you guys so much. Thanks so much for listening. You can read about all kinds of great stories happening in the world of filmmaking and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like. Rate and subscribe to the podcast. Like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, check us out on Instagram. But I also really want to turn your attention to something we have live on our website our No Film School gear guides. These are guides for buying all kinds of gear. Whatever you're shopping for, we likely have covered it either in our deals pages, which we put up every once in a while, but also through our gear guides where we comb through the best products available and isolate which ones work for which kinds of filmmakers. So whether you're looking for the right mirrorless camera, the right sound recording equipment, maybe even the best editing software, we have options and we give you all the details and where you can buy them. So check that out, gearguides at nofilmschool.com. You can see them at the top of our homepage or scroll down to the footer and you'll see their gear guides listed. Just click that link. Thanks so much for listening.